as has already been mentioned, what a blessed privilege we have of coming together this afternoon with the excitement and the capability that we have been blessed with to not only engage in singing as we have done in prayer, as we have already pleasantly done, but to engage in a consideration of another segment of the 66th and final book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. As we have noted throughout this series, this evening being the 14th installment in this series, we have already emphasized on many occasions that many difficulties have throughout the century surrounded this book, and many notable individuals have in fact called portions of it into question. All of that was rather needless speculation, for we can see again the very fingerprint of the God of heaven etched over and over again in this grand finale of inspiration. It is such an encouraging book on many levels and in many ways, and that is a rather potent expression for the very chapter to which we will turn our attention tonight. If I might begin by calling your attention to some of those things we saw last evening, last Sunday evening, having to do with the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation. On that occasion, we did see that there were three rather powerful and potent forces arrayed mightily against the character of the word and greatness of the God of heaven. These, first of all, were that sea beast beginning in Revelation 13.1, and we saw the might and the forcefulness with which this thing, this entity opposed the operation and success of God. However, that first beast was not the only one for a quick in succession thereto was the land beast. Both of these were exceedingly mighty, and very many, in fact, worshipped that first beast by virtue of the influence of the latter. As the chapter closed, we well remember there was that mark of the beast, almost certainly the most famous single verse in the entirety of the book of Revelation. Revelation 13, 18 informs us 666 is the number of the man, the number of the beast, the mark of the beast. As we learned a bit about them, we might of course certainly not rehearse the entirety of that lesson. The first beast was the Roman Empire. The second was the cult of emperor worship, and I might quickly add, as we shall shortly see in chapters 15 and 16, that beast would ultimately certainly present itself finally in the form of that false religion known as the Roman Catholic religion. And on Wednesday evening, our studies involving the character of the Reformation and Restoration movements will certainly familiarize ourselves with that penultimate satisfaction and the meaning of that second beast, that mark of the beast. The greatness thereof, understanding the falseness associated with bowing the knee to Caesar, worshiping him instead of God, and in fact, not only that, but any influence whereby one would elevate worldly benefit above the character of service to the only begotten Son of God and his Father in heaven. But to say all of that is, of course, to say that those three forces are exceedingly mighty. A good question might be asked. In light of the strength and power of those forces, will God's cause ultimately prevail? Shall God and those who follow Him be ultimately the victors and experience the finality of all that God has promised? Certainly in the aftermath of chapter 13, that would seem a fair question, which seems an appropriate time to switch the screen. For chapter 14 is a dramatic and amazingly so affirmation. The answer is yes. Those beasts may appear strong, they may appear mighty, but right in the aftermath of it, God calls us to appreciate His cause will be victorious. Absolutely certain, and there is no reason to question or doubt that fact. 
it's rather interesting that quite often in the Word of God, when things look bleak and when God's cause appears to be on the brink of collapse or in fact being defeated, it's quite often then and there that God will turn the eyes of His faithful to the pristine horizon in which ultimately His cause shall prevail. That happened in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 7, 11, and 14, and now it's happening again in Revelation. In the aftermath of chapter 12 with the dragon, chapter 13 with these beasts and the mark that is worn by virtue of that beast, now in chapter 14 we have one of the most beautiful oases anywhere in the book of Revelation. The grand character of the fact that God shall be the victor. And those who in fact tie on to him and follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, they too shall be in heaven and they will be the winners. Let's in fact look more carefully at the things surrounding the entirety of the successfulness of chapter 14, looking at the beauty to be seen herein and the greatness that you and I can use day by day to help us in our service in a positive and bright way to the terrific God of heaven. At the very bottom of that screen, I indicate to you that as we will look tonight at only the first 13 verses of Revelation 14, we will reserve the latter portion of that chapter, namely the last section, as well as chapter 15, which is a bit brief for our lesson next, Lord's Day evening. But tonight we shall find plenty of consuming material in the first 13 verses of Revelation 14. With that said, I would ask that you would read with me the first five verses of Revelation 14, for this is the first segment of that chapter. Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name and the name, I'm sorry, his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among, from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. As verse number 1 opens, and we might again recall that the very last verse of the preceding chapter had made note of that mark of the beast and the negativity and evil associated therewith. But immediately the scene shifts. John, in fact, in verse 1 sees, saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Not only that, but he notices in verse number 1, but there were 144,000 with him, and these rather interestingly had the name of God in their forehead. Verse number 2 informs us that their heavenly announcement accompanied the scene of this moment. For immediately John heard, as it were, in terms of this voice from heaven, a great thunder, harpers as they were harping on their harps, and what's more, this voice of many waters as it's made note of in verse number 2. This same group that John heard sang a new song before the throne. And the living creatures and the elders that were therein present appreciated the greatness thereof. And the only ones that were able to learn this song were the 144,000 which were identified as the redeemed from earth. 
the significance of that statement we shall see, of course, more carefully in just a moment. But it's to be noted in verse 4 that these same ones are identified as being undefiled. That is to say, they were recognized or called spiritually as virgins, and these rather significantly had followed the Lamb whithersoever he had gone. Called first fruits unto God, they also were such that they were without guile, that is, lie in their mouth. And these, you see, appeared so without fault before the throne of God. In that brief description of what John saw, we, of course, might ask, what's the significance and the meaning of these first five verses? Well, first, we might notice a figure. As John saw this 144,000, this reminds us that we had earlier already seen this grouping in Revelation 7. The first several verses of that chapter had identified the 144,000, and there they were recognized as 12,000 from each of 12 named tribes of Israel. And that's the reason for here the division into 12, into 12 groupings or square-looking sections. But we might signify also the importance that these, as we learned earlier, were in fact the same thing that we shall see again here in the Revelation 14. Consider with me then these observations. That lamb that we notice in verse 1. That is to be characterized so strongly in contrast to Revelation 13, 11. In the previous chapter, last Lord's Day evening, we had noted there that one of those beasts, namely the land beast, appeared and had horns that resemble those of a lamb. And on that occasion, we reminded ourselves that's a false lamb, false religion with false things associated with it. Here in verse number 1, we see this is the true Lamb of God. Interestingly enough, this Lamb reminds us of the very statement in John that John the Baptist made in John 1.29. Indeed, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. This Lamb that we see on this occasion is the very same one that appeared in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. There, that lion of the tribe of Judah that we identified as none other than the Christ himself became that lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's none other than Jesus. Here, that lamb that we appreciate and see in verse 1 is that very beautiful matter and thing that John was privileged to see as well. But notice that he is standing on Mount Zion having already noted that there was the redeemed, the representative grouping of this 144,000, notice that Mount Zion immediately calls to our mind, and again, so often as has happened, the significance of the Old Testament prophecies. Where do we see the significant meaning of Zion in the Bible? First, we encounter that term in the Old Testament. When David chose and overcame, we should say, that given place formerly held by the Jebusites and he conquered it and made it his capital, known, of course, as Jerusalem, one of the hills associated nearby was none other than the one that would later be named Zion. And oh, how God favored Zion so often in the Old Testament. For instance, in a few of the passages that I've listed for your consideration, in Psalm 9, verse number 11 we read there about singing praises unto God and upholding the character that God's name was in Zion. Later in Psalm 48, specifically verses 11 and following, beginning in fact even as early as verse 2 in that chapter, 
we see one more time how that Zion was situated for glory because she is whom God had selected in the Old Testament to be the storehouse of his blessings, the children of Israel in reception thereof. Later in Psalm 132, beginning in verse number 1, we read yet again about the glory that is to be associated with Zion, for God's habitation was there. As we come to this reference in Revelation 14, the Lamb stood on Mount Zion. What's the New Testament significance of Zion? No more clearly could that have been stated than in the very text of Hebrews 12, verse 22. For there, the Hebrew writer in the New Testament era said, We have come into Mount Zion, the very assembly of God's saints, the New Testament church, the redeemed, of course, those standing here in Revelation 14 with the Savior. Those saved are members of the body, the blessed body of Christ. We read in Ephesians 5, verse 23, that Christ is the Savior of the body. And His body, of course, in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 is the church. One more time, we see how that the church fills and permeates the beautiful record of the book of Revelation. And those saints and their encouragement lead us, as the verse closes, to note one more time how that, that number is not literal. Though there may be those who would tell us that no more nor no less than 144,000 will enter heaven, they have completely mistaken the thrust of Revelation chapter 7 as well as Revelation chapter 14. Finally, might we notice <clears throat> that these 144,000 had a rather remarkable thing written in their foreheads. This is, of course, placed so strategically. In the very last chapter, the very close of chapter 13, it was that mark of the beast that some had, that mark that in fact distanced to them from God because they were not following him faithfully and truly. They were following false religion, false ways, and that which was, of course, untrue. But here, these redeemed have in their forehead the blessed name of the mark of God. And as such, they are owned and known by Him. Of course, you and I, not having a desire to have that mark of the beast, but oh, how we desire to be known and owned by the God of heaven, recognized, appreciated, and sustained by Him. Indeed, can we not see beginning in verse number 2 of that chapter, that this great announcement that was therein made leads us to appreciate that that announcement is such that the word as is so significant. For notice, he heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters. John didn't say it was the, vo the actual voice of many waters, nor in fact did he say that it was actually thunder. But it captured his attention as if it were and the same thing is actually true of the last statement of that passage. Even though the King James translators chose not to insert the word as, in the Greek it is there. There were not literal harpers harping in heaven. It was as such in the sense of its sweetness and in the sense of its attractiveness and its golden appeal. And immediately following that in verse 3, we see the tremendous statement that these who were redeemed from earth sang a new song, and only they could learn the words thereof. What about the nature of this song? What were some of the verses contained in it, and what was the principal subject? I shall ask you to hold on with me until next Sunday evening, when in chapter 15, we have some of the specifics of that song listed. For now, might we appreciate the glory and greatness that the various elders and the living creatures in heaven appreciated the grandness of this song, 
And as such, these were in fact yet again named as the redeemed from earth. You and I, of course, long to be amongst that number. Those who, with their sins forgiven, remitted by the very blood of Christ, shall be amongst that golden and grand number one final day in the golden climes of glory. In verse number 4, what else is true about these who were redeemed from earth? We're also told that they were not defiled with women. In our earlier discussion back in chapter 7, we learned quickly and early on that that again was not physical purity, but spiritual purity. For if it were physical purity, immediately we would face contradiction and contrast to other plain Bible texts. For that would, of course, mean that no married man could ever enter heaven if that were to be literal. But so many married individuals were proclaimed as faithful, not the least of which was Abraham in Matthew 8, verse 11. Could we also observe, These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Many a statement could be made about that text. In fact, friend, if you and I desire to go to heaven, there is a forerunner who has already blazed the trail, and all we must do is follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 inform us that Christ is our forerunner already in heaven. And if we desire to be where he is, we simply need to follow him wherever he has gone. And since he is in heaven, there we shall also be, following the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. It seems such a simple idea, but yet so profound. For thus, as we see the commandments associated with that which Christ has given, we can also enjoy the greatness and the reward which he already has been able to make available to so very many, and which you and I can also see as well. As we close verse number 5, that purity is yet emphasized again. The certainty of the fact that in their mouth, that is the redeemed, there was found no guile. That is to say, no untruth or no falsehood or no lie. And finally, for they are without fault before the throne of God. That concept is ever so exciting. For we appreciate full well that our own individual weaknesses... It is not such that you and I live sinlessly each day. But do we not know from 1 John 1 that we have the blessed blood of Christ that continually cleanses our sin when we walk in the light? For is it not true that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son cleanseth us from all sin. As we thus are viewed and pictured without fault before God, it's because we're covered in the blood of Jesus. It's because His blood not only has wiped and cleansed our sins, but when God sees you and me, He sees the preciousness of His Son and the blood which He shed. With the closing of verse 5, we've thus been led to a new height of excitement in the opening part of Revelation 14, very different than the negativity of chapter 13. However, there is more to be learned. For as we begin in verse number 6, Let's notice as we read verses 6 through 13 that we will be led to appreciate the grandness and glory of yet another aspect of this chapter. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. 
And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. As we again notice what John saw, we observe rather quickly that here is the message of three angels, and these follow in succession. The first one we appreciate in verse number 6, an angel fly in the midst or in the middle of heaven. And amazingly enough, what was it that this angel had? The only significant notice, he had the everlasting gospel. That is to say, the everlasting good news, the everlasting good tidings. Interestingly enough, as we consider the character of that gospel, we might well notice at this point that what is the time frame and what is the timetable associated with that gospel? The blessed gospel of Jesus Christ began in its fullness to be proclaimed on that first Pentecost following the resurrection of our Savior, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Later, do we not see fulfillment of that fact again as we read 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4? As Paul made definition of what constituted the gospel, he said it's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And that I preached unto you, Paul said, unless you've believed in vain. As Peter stood on Pentecost and proclaimed the glory and fullness of that, some gathered there were pricked in their heart and cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? On that occasion, they were told what to do to have sin remitted and forgiven. The everlasting gospel in its fullness had been proclaimed ever since. As this angel had that in note, can we appreciate who is then subject to this everlasting gospel? Isn't it an amazing fact Every tongue, every nation, every people, and every kindred. This everlasting gospel is not reserved for a meager few, nor is it reserved for a simplistic set or those who are deemed worthy of it. All are subject to the glory of that truth. Isaiah, through the character of the prophecy of God, had prophesied that very matter so many centuries prior to the nature of Acts 2. For did he not say that all nations shall flow unto it in Isaiah 2, verses 2, through 2, 3, and 4? And did we not read Micah proclaim the same in Micah 4, verses 1 through 3? In fact, as we consider the character of verse 6, all are subject to it. Earlier tonight in our prayer, note was made of Romans chapter 1. Where in fact, in verse number 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
It is, in fact, in that very gospel in which we appreciate the fullness of God's plan for human redemption and the nature of the sacrifice of His sinless Son. That's what this angel saw. That's what this angel had in possession. But do we not easily see that in verse 7, the proclamation is this. Even though we know very well about that great gospel, the aspect that is emphasized so singularly is that of judgment. For in terms of the note of verse 7, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Even though the gospel contains many beautiful aspects that touch our lives in every aspect and remark, that aspect that was proclaimed by the angel was judgment. And isn't it true that the gospel does proclaim the reality of judgment? So then every one of us shall give account of himself unto God, Romans 14, 12. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. And on and on we could list about the nature of the fact that there is to be a judgment. And all kindreds and nations and tongues shall be present and give account of themselves. In Matthew 25, verse 32, Jesus graphically said, All nations shall be gathered on that occasion. No exemptions at all shall be granted for anyone to be absent, to not be present. And here in this judgment picture, in this beautiful judgment scene, may we not see as the verse closes, who will be the one participating as judge? Worship Him that made heaven and earth, and the sea, and the fountains of waters. And interestingly there, we recall many occasions where God is describing His power in that way. Nehemiah 9 verse 6, Paul's beautiful refrain in Acts chapter 14, it is in fact the one who shall always do what's right, carrying out the judgment on that day. Genesis 18 verse 25. These thoughts though quickly lead us to see that that is not all that John saw. For in verse number 8, there's another angel. But this one is declaring something very different, it would appear. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This angel had only a single message related to Babylon. I wonder what that signifies and what's the meaning thereof. Perhaps you and I, by doing some investigative work, can ascertain who or what this Babylon is. For after all, it is termed a city in verse number 8. But what's more, is we consider the place in which Babylon is appreciated in the Bible, what is its significance? The first element in which Babylon takes the center stage in the Bible is, of course, again in the Old Testament. Isn't it amazing that as we come to the time when God's people found themselves inhabiting the promised land, but they had over time become unfaithful unto God, and eventually God allowed Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar being its leader, to overrun Canaan and to take his people captive. That began first in 605 B.C., culminated in 586 B.C. And on that latter occasion, the temple was destroyed, the people taken captive, and the city was left in ruins. What do we learn about Babylon? She was a persecutor of God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, a captor of them. 
But what's more, it was a people who opposed the very nature of the sovereignty of God and placed herself in God's position. Nebuchadnezzar did that on more than one occasion. In Daniel chapter 4, what was his lot because of it? There was an impressive dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. In fact, this is the lesser known of the dreams that's recorded in the book of Daniel. We tend to think of the great image that had a head of gold and various other parts of silver, brass, iron, and clay. But Nebuchadnezzar had another dream in Daniel chapter 4. And in that dream, he saw a gigantic tree that filled the entire earth. However, the command from heaven was given to cut it down. Interestingly enough, though, the stump was left. When Nebuchadnezzar became interested in what that dream meant, he was told, you will be cut down. For in your pomp and circumstance and in your failure to humble yourself before God, you will be brought down to size. For you have failed to glorify the God of heaven. Indeed, that came to pass, for Nebuchadnezzar lived like a beast of the field for seven long years. In fact, the hair on his body grew like that of an animal. His fingernails grew like claws. He was humbled, and in the finality of it, he came to his understanding. The stump again began to grow, but this time he remained humble and proclaimed his allegiance to the very God whom he should have known all along. Indeed, do we not see here this Babylon was, in its opposition to God, corrected. Yet one more time in Revelation 14, the same shall happen again. Babylon is fallen. This captor, this persecutor of God's people in the New Testament era shall not prevail perpetually in that state of opposition. Babylon is fallen. Since Babylon we shall see again more carefully in chapter 17, maybe we can already identify who or what Babylon is. In chapter 17 it's described in verses 8 and 9 as the city of seven hills. And immediately we know that's Rome. For Rome was built on seven hills and everyone in the ancient world knew that. You see, the Roman Empire yet again as the one persecuting God's people, attempting to overthrow God's cause, Babylon will fall. Later when we see in chapter 17 the details of how she fell would again be noted. But can we not even see at this point, why did she fall? Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That fornication that's listed there is not literal sexual infidelity, but rather quite often in the Old Testament, fornication is used in a spiritual fashion. If one refuses to follow God, but rather follows false images and false worship, in his association with that falseness, he has prostituted himself spiritually and committed spiritual fornication. For he has given his allegiance to one who is not the true mate, his true companion spiritually. In Jeremiah chapter 3, that was noted very graphically with regard to ancient Israel. God said, though I have been a faithful husband to you, you have not been a faithful bride to me. You have followed every kind of false god like Molech and Ashtaroth and Baal, whereas I should have been the one you firmly held yourself faithful to. One more time, we notice this Babylon had encouraged falseness in the terms of religion. But significantly enough, all nations drank of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. There's that word wine. 
more than once in the Old Testament. That reminds us, for instance, of Jeremiah 51, where Babylon again is spoken of in regard to the wine of her fornication. John uses that phrase so powerfully to notice again the corruption and the impurity associated with that first and second beast that we saw last Sunday evening. At this point, having looked interestingly at these first two angels, there is yet another to follow in verse 9. Would you notice again with me the proclamations of this third angel? The third angel followed them. It's significant this angel did not precede them. This angel followed them and said with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. We learned last week that first and second beast, the character of the Roman Empire and those that would bow and worship the Caesar, those that would in fact give their allegiance to false religion in whatever form it would take. John very graphically says as he heard the angel declare, if any man worship that beast, his image, have that mark of the beast in his forehead or in his hand, notice what that person will receive. It's not a blessing. In fact, he shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, and not just drink thereof, for that wrath will be poured out without mixture. That significance takes us back to Isaiah 1, verse 22. In the long days of the ancient past, when they would take the grapes from the field and use that to produce what we call grape juice, or even, in fact, fermented wine therefrom, it was such that quite often to make that last longer, they would mix it with water. And in that, in that diluted state, many found that very palatable. However, we notice here, God will not water down his punishment. These who worship that beast, these who proceed in matters of falseness will receive the fullness of God's wrath undiluted. They'll receive all that he intends to give them. That's a significant point when we think about the hell that awaits the unfaithful. For those who choose to follow ways of unfaithfulness, and those who proceed apart from the truth of God, there will come a day they will receive God's wrath undiluted. It will not be watered down in any way. Finally, we notice in verse 10, as an added incentive to note the fearfulness associated, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, forever and ever. We've often noted in the scriptures the character of torment, the things associated with that eternity in a devil's hell. We certainly would remember that the book of Revelation is a symbolic, figurative book. But when we come to a text like this, we are not at liberty to reduce the character of it very much. For Jesus spoke in texts that were not figurative in Mark chapter 9 about a place where the fire is not quenched, where a place where the worm never dies, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth day and night forevermore, Matthew 25 verse 30, as well as Matthew chapters 12 and 13. You see, in no way are we able to look at the texts that describe hell and see anything but a place of everlasting torment. And notice the language of verse number 11. Those who are unfortunate enough to be cast there have no rest day or night forever. Never a possibility of release. Never a possibility of reduction of punishment. Never a possibility of even the slightest element of hopefulness. No rest day or night forever. 
This is what John saw. And furthermore, as the verse closes, this is all who worship the beast in his image and whoever received that mark of the beast. We've already noted that you and I can receive that mark of the beast just as certainly as anyone ever did in the first century when we choose rather to gain worldly benefit and compromise truth and faithfulness. And in that way, are we not lining ourselves up for just as terrible a fate as they? Certainly we are. That's the teaching of John. Significant, isn't it, that as we consider all of that, what an emphasis we see in verse number 12. Here, John says, is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. How does one avoid being in this place? How does one so align himself in favor with God that this place called hell will not be his lot? John says, it is keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You and I live in a world in which commandment keeping is not looked upon rather favorably. That's too legalistic and it's too fundamental. But friend, that's what John said will keep a person out of hell. John said that's what must be in the life of a person keeping the commandments. Though the world may not look upon that lightly, though it may not look upon that positively, we read one more time as the very last chapter in the Bible says, Blessed are they that do His commandments. Those are the ones that will be blessed. Those are the ones to enjoy an everlasting greatness with God and blissfulness of peace in heaven. As we close verse number 12, those that keep the commandments of God, those who exemplify the faith of Jesus, are the very ones that we see one more time who are blessed in verse 13. And this will be the closing passage to which we'll turn our attention tonight. And isn't it a glorious way to close the lesson? After seeing the terribleness of the judgment on those that worship the beast and have the mark of the beast, verse 13 says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, John, this is important, right. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest in their labors, and their works do follow them. On this last screen that we have to consider, this final decree is presented, Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Though death may not be the most favored of subjects, though certainly when a dear loved one passes on, it may not be the most favorite time of our life, let us never forget what John wrote, Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. You and I may often have heard someone say, well, she or he's in a better place now, no longer hurting and in pain. If that person died in the Lord, never a truer word than that was ever spoken. But might we make the following assertion? There is a prepositional phrase in that verse that speaks volumes. He didn't say, blessed are the dead. The text didn't end there. He said, blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. You see, you and I must be in the Lord to have the kind of death spoken of here. We must have so conducted and behaved ourselves, and so lived in a fashion that we can die in Christ. You see, just the opposite of this is true if we aren't in Christ. When we pass this life not in the Lord, in fact, never will we observe or appreciate again any greater sadness, torment, awful state that we shall then find ourselves in. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. It's a true maxim indeed. We can't die in the Lord unless we live in the Lord. 
We can't possibly leave this life in him if we didn't live in him. And so day by day, we, by virtue of verse 12, must exhibit the patience of the saints and keep his commandments. And in so doing, we shall have the death described in verse 13. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. And as if that statement by John weren't powerful enough, the Holy Spirit echoed a following refrain, Yea, saith the Spirit. Verse 13, they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Even the Holy Spirit noted that they can now rest from their labors. The long, dreary toil of life is now past. They finally are able to lay the mantle of work and exhaustion down and exhibit and experience the grandness of rest that God has in store for them. Finally, their works do follow them. Those labors that were done in life, certainly many have been positively influenced thereby. But can we not notice that those works will also follow them to judgment? For when Christ, or rather when God, opens the books that we'll see in Revelation 20 and reads out of that book of life the names of those who are the redeemed, the works will be one of the things that will be made note of on that occasion. Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12. And with that said, what a beautiful way to conclude this section of chapter number 14. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Are you in the Lord tonight? Are you so living day by day so that you have at this moment the case of being able to live and to die in the Lord? If you've never entered into the Lord, then you're not in Him now. And we only enter Him in baptism according to Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Have you thus believed in Jesus, repented of your sins, confessed His name and been baptized? If so, then you were in the Lord at one time at least. Have you become unfaithful? Has He erased your name out of the book of life? We learned in Revelation 3 that can happen. If that's the case, let him write it in again. Come back to your first love. Rededicate your life to his cause. Brother Terry has chosen a hymn of invitation. If we could assist you in your consideration at this point of obeying publicly, we'd be happy to do that. As we summarize the lesson this evening, we've learned the greatness of the redeemed of the 144,000. We've learned what it means to be amongst that number. We've also learned the message of doom declared by those three angels involving judgment. And finally, we've seen how blessed it is to die in the Lord. If we could help you tonight ensure that latter part, we'd be happy to do it. Even now, while together we stand and while we sing.